Hello, hello, and welcome back. We are The Kids Table, a podcast where we discuss all things child development with a research and policy bent. I'm Haley. And I'm Caitlin. We are a researcher and policy analyst, translating the science of child development for the public and integrating it with policy, practice, and trends in tech and business. Each month, we usually start with covering the latest in cutting-edge research, in popular media, and in the policy sphere. And then we pop to our guest portion, where you get to hear straight from an expert about the amazing work they're doing in developmental science. But this month is going to be a little different. We want to showcase our guest expert, Dr. Melissa Klein-Stroll, who has some incredible insights into the how and why of open science. We are so excited to talk with Melissa today because one of the main reasons we wanted to start this podcast was to make science and policy around human development and developmental research just more accessible and also to help elevate the really incredible work that researchers and practitioners in all different areas are doing to advance our understanding of children's learning and how we organize that world through our policy choices. And a big part of that is helping the scientific community embrace practices that make what we do more transparent for one another and more aligned with that ultimate goal of advancing our knowledge. And this involves practices from a wide spectrum of different options for engagement, like sharing resources, notifying other researchers of methods that maybe didn't pan out. Yes, and that is where we run into the file drawer problem, which is when a researcher doesn't get a finding that's likely to be published, and so it gets filed away somewhere for later, which is actually a huge problem in psychology. Exactly. And this practice, while common, because the publishing system by and large doesn't tend to reward findings that aren't super novel or splashy, means that down the road, other researchers won't know that that study was already done and that the findings didn't yield significant results. Yeah, exactly. And open science is about more than just results too. It's also about the way that the study was designed and all that planning that happens at the onset. So tools like registered reports and pre-registrations, which you will learn all about today from this episode, are really tools that help researchers think through the full scope of their study while they're designing it so that they can actually anticipate what issues and mistakes could come up as they're working. I think we're sort of getting into our topic already. So why don't you go ahead and bring in our guest? Sounds great. Thanks, Haley. Today we're interviewing Dr. Melissa Klein-Stroll. Melissa works at MIT as the Executive Director of Look It, a website that lets families participate in cognitive development experiments from home. Melissa earned her PhD from MIT in Brain and Cognitive Sciences and did her postdoctoral work at Harvard and MIT. She was previously at the Center for Open Science, where she worked on a large-scale project studying the reliability of claims in social science journals. And outside of work, Melissa enjoys backpacking, tango, and singing. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm really happy I could be here. And Melissa, I'm especially really excited to be talking to you today because I'm a big fan of your work. For our listeners who maybe aren't as wonky about developmental research, what would be really helpful to hear from you is just a definition of open science. That's a great question. One of the things that I think can be a little bit challenging is that the phrase open science means so many different things to so many different people. And that can be positive or negative. Some people will hear that term and they're going to think like, oh, well, I think I heard something about pre-registration and that's open science. And I really don't think it's a good fit for me. And other people might say like, oh yeah, I love everything about open science. And then just kind of not communicate clearly what the specific thing is that they might be trying to accomplish. 
So the way that I like to think about open science is that as scientists, we all have really like kind of big, broad goals that we're ultimately trying to achieve. Like we're trying to improve people's lives in the world. We're trying to contribute to what humanity knows about these fields of knowledge. We're really aiming for these really big and broad goals. And we know that those goals are really hard to achieve. And one of the things that can make those goals really hard to achieve is lack of access to information or lack of transparency, just sort of all of the limitations that come both from the systems that we do our science in, and then just also the way that people tend to communicate with each other or things that are easy or difficult for us to kind of remember to tell somebody else about, you know, how a study works. And those things can really get in the way of us kind of aiming towards those big goals. So when I think about open science, I think about it as sort of an orientation or just kind of a lens that you can look at your yourself and look at your science, look at what you're doing to try to think about the potential for those barriers and how you might be able to start addressing them. So when I think about open science, a lot of what I'm thinking about is really a curiosity about yourself and how you do science and the ways that you can improve those. In particular, a great way to improve things is to make yourself public, make yourself transparent to the people around you so that you can have those chances to look for mistakes or so that something that kind of seems like a failure, like a null result, result, you still communicate it so that that next graduate student next year doesn't have to spend the same time that you did finding the null effect. Yeah, I already figured out it didn't work. (laughs) Those kinds of things, even if we might think, oh, this was just me, or maybe I just made a mistake, those can be so valuable for other people. I think kind of at every career stage, there's a huge benefit that you can get from entering into those conversations, thinking of yourself as part of a scientific community and being sort of curious and critical about that community. Why are we doing what we're doing? If I don't understand why something is being done a certain way, can I find out? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a great reason, or maybe this is sort of just the way we've always done things and things have changed. Maybe we want to do something else. But rather than being about like a specific practice or a specific thing that you share, it's very much more about thinking of science as as something that you participate in, something that you can be a decision maker in kind of right off the bat. You don't need to kind of wait till you have tenure until you have a faculty position to think about the impact that you want your science, this thing that you're spending all of this time on, the kind of impact that you want it to have on the world. You can feel free to be in that conversation because it's a conversation for everybody. I really love your description of it as a community that you're sort of entering into. And so having those transparent conversations helps to facilitate that engagement with that community. And just as a sidebar, curse that file drawer problem. We just need to <laughs> totally dispense with that practice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I guess I'll also say that it's a lot of communities. I think it can sometimes see like there's one big conversation, but kind of the more you dig into it and the more you really kind of get super concrete about your research area or a particular method or a particular type of publication, the more and more you see the really broad diversity of different conversations in different communities that are all wrestling with many of these problems together. Yeah, for sure. And I've heard a lot that science is a group sport, you know, a team effort. And so I've also heard the com- very frequently of like scientists are often working in silos or like they're very, very specialized. And so I love that it frames a researcher as being really agentic and contributing to that community and also helping to shape it instead of passively just entering into it. And on that note, what are all of the different practices and all the ways to participate in open science? You know, there's a bunch of different things. There's registered reports, there's preprints, there's pre-registration, data sharing. Can you walk us through those differences? 
Yeah. So I guess the first thing that I'll say is that everything that you just named, I think of these as a series of tools or activities, things that you can have in your toolbox that are going to facilitate you in doing this really deep thinking work about your science and what you're hoping that it'll mean. I'll talk about a few of these things, but I also want to point people to a great online book, which is called The Turing Way, which is this big, collaboratively written, still constantly being written book. So if you have a question like, what are registered reports? Or or what's pre-registration or what does open access mean? That is a fantastic resource. So I sometimes think about some of these different tools in terms of where they might happen in a research cycle. So if you think about going from reading a publication or having an idea to designing experiment, collecting the data, analyzing it, writing it up, and then sharing it out again, if you kind of go all the way around that process and that looks obviously very different in different fields, but a lot of these tools are intended to help you think through the types of things that tend to go wrong at a particular point in that cycle, or to provide an alternative where the way something is currently happening is pretty closed or has a lot of gatekeeping or is difficult to access and to say, hey, what if we did this in public instead? So if we're thinking about reading papers and accessing them, the two big things that I often think of would be open access journals. So a journal that previously might have required a subscription or often for your institution's library to have a subscription to that journal. And instead, it's going to be open access. So that journal is going to make those articles public for anybody to read. There are a lot of incentives in place for researchers and members of the practicing scientific community to participate in this practice and to find avenues to be more open about their studies, the development of their studies, their thinking, whether it be through preprints or these registered reports or data sharing or whatever the case may be. But I have a hard time squaring the benefit to the publishers to sort of deviate from a working model that they monetarily benefit from. Do they have an ideological horse in the race or how are we steering? that ship so that that's coming along with this change in the scientific community more broadly. So you're absolutely right. The publishers have a great deal going. They have a business model that is very successful. And I will say that there's a difference between for-profit publishers and nonprofit publishers. Nonprofit publishers are often being run by academic society. To the extent that there's money involved there, it's because they're collecting dues from their members so that they can maintain that kind of editorial staff that's necessary to keep the journal going. One of the ways that you keep your ship afloat or whether it's this gigantic, greatly profitable model that you've come up with yourself, it is absolutely the case that there are people who have stakes in keeping the status quo the status quo. And in terms of how we counter that, I think that we are already starting to see it change. And the reason that we're starting to see it change is because publishers are starting to understand that people want things to be more open. The reason that a lot of journals are starting to offer open access of some model or another is because they're starting to realize, hey, wait a minute, people can just post things on preprint servers. Why should they bother with us? We have the cachet. People really love to get a nature paper or a science paper. It's huge for their career, but they can kind of see the writing on the wall that they're not the only game in town. And so you're starting to see them, I think, responding to scientists saying like, hey, we'd like to do things another way. And people have different opinions about whether the publishing companies are going to come with us on this journey or whether we need to just sort of throw off that whole cart and horse and leave it behind and build something entirely different. I suspect the answer is going to be lots of different models all at once. And I expect things will look very different in 30 years, but I have no idea how. And then on the other hand, you have preprints, which is to say, hey, I'm going to submit this to a journal. I really value this peer review. I'm going to go through that process. But there's also this real value in communicating quickly. 
peer review can be very slow. Journals have a lot of stuff that they're trying to do. There can be real, real value. And I think especially for people early in their career to saying, hey, this is a preliminary version of this work, but I'd really like to get this out there rather than wait for the final, final, final version. And I think preprints is actually also a nice example because there are a lot of ways to accomplish what we might call a preprint that range from very casual. Like you could just post that same Word document or PDF that you submitted to a journal. You could just post it on your own personal website. There you go. It's open. That's great. And you can send that link to anybody. It might make your life a little bit easier. Or you might look at something like SciArchive, which is an archive for preprints. If you upload it to that, you're going to get access to some other things like your paper is going to show up in Google Scholar. There's like a little bit of a lag, but it's going to become something that you can cite kind of right off the bat. The name is a little bit of a misnomer. Like it's a preprint because you've preprinted it. It's ready to go to the publisher for the first time. But a lot of preprints are the final versions. You start out by posting a peer review version. And then as it's revised, you can post an updated version of it. Some people also just choose to not put things on preprint servers until after peer review. That's also fine. At that point, you're often kind of looking at what exactly is your agreement with the publisher. But in almost all cases, as long as it's not that literal typeset journal logo version of the PDF, if it's your version of it, you're frequently in a position where you can also share that. It's great. We've got the journal. And then alongside that, we also have a way to let absolutely anybody access and read that paper. From the perspective of planning your research and setting yourself up for success, a lot of people are talking about pre-registration. And there's a few different things that we can distinguish when we're thinking about pre-registration and what it's supposed to accomplish and what kind of guardrails you are or aren't putting yourself on when you think about pre-registration. One way to think about a pre-registration is it's basically like a thesis proposal for everything that you do. So when I was in graduate school, I had been doing various experiments, starting things out, and then I was at the point where I was really going to buckle down and say, okay, this is the science I'm going to do from now until the end of my PhD. And my advisor said, oh, are you really sure you want to take that experiment on? Or, hey, I like this experiment, but you have a confound. Kind of talk that through. Get really specific about the plans because that's going to give you that opportunity to start to troubleshoot or to notice problems that could be coming up. It also is a way to kind of pull a lot of the work that happens usually later in a scientific process earlier. So if you write your pre-registration in detail, or you say what you're planning to do, that usually winds up being quite similar to what's ultimately the method section of your paper. And one way that I like to talk to people when they're thinking about, oh my gosh, what should I write in my pre-registration? It seems like there's so much that I could have to specify. I think there's kind of two key points that I would say. There's like various forms. If you go on OSF, for instance, there's several different templates that you could pick, each of which is designed for a particular style of research or to kind of guide you through what you're going to think about. But if you're really just starting off and you just want to say, hey, I'm I'm not even sure if I'm going to register this somewhere. I'm just going to write the document and email it to my advisor. So we remember what we were thinking way back at the beginning. The two things that I would be looking at is first, what are the things that you would report in the method section of your paper? And second, where are things messy and where are they likely to go wrong? There's, I would say, relatively limited value in pre-registering the stuff that's always the same, that nobody ever has any questions about, that's totally uncontroversial and will never be affected by a global pandemic starting. I wouldn't put your time into being exhaustive. If you're trying to get something done, focus on some really key points that are going to give you a little bit more of that power to really make a difference. I will also say that I have never, ever, ever in my entire life seen a pre-registration that was followed and reported to the letter. Almost everybody deviates from their pre-registrations. This is fine. This is great. This is normal. It's something that I think really should be recognized as part of the way that we use pre-registrations. We use pre-registrations in order to plan, in order to demonstrate for ourselves and for other people how we're making our work robust from certain classes of errors. And the way that we make ourselves robust from those classes of errors is to make that plan, stick to 
it were possible and where it's not feasible to write something else. I think it's this like little mini silver lining of the pandemic is that we're seeing people being a lot more honest in their method section in a way that I think is absolutely great for science. We were intending to do something, but there was a global pandemic. And so we stopped data collection. That is a great thing to put in a scientific paper because it's the truth. And I think we often feel a little weird. Like, what do you mean I should write? I stopped this experiment now because we ran out of money. I've never seen that in a paper. But saying that your sample size is determined by the budget and resources of your scientific context is totally reasonable. It's true. It's something that we absolutely should be reporting when it's relevant. I've read countless papers where people say, I made this analysis plan and then we were analyzing our data and we realized that our plan was just incorrect. We didn't think about something that was true about our data. It wouldn't be scientifically reasonable to write this. And then often what people will do will say, we're going to report what we pre-registered because again, you've got that advantage of the confirmatory lens. We're going to report it. And in addition, we're going to report the analysis, you know, because we consulted another expert, because we learned something new. We believe this is really actually the best appropriate analysis to be including. But I think that people often worry about pre-registrations kind of functioning as a prison or like really tying your hands. Pre-registrations work the best when they are helping you report what is true about what you knew before and what you knew as you were going along. Yeah. There's another and somewhat more specific thing that pre-registration is often doing, which which is preventing specifically against the risks of false positives when you're looking at a particular analytic result. A lot of the problem where that comes in is the garden of forking paths. I'm not sure whether I should stop at 100 or if I should stop at 100 in my analytic sample. So let me get a few more participants to get up to that number. And the problem that comes in there is if you can see your results when you're making that decision, whether or not to get those extra participants, there is just no way that you can know the result of your study and make that decision in a way that's not affected by those results. Like that's just not how humans work. We've all had the experience of you you do a calculation, it doesn't come out the way you expect. And so you look into it and you're like, hey, what happened? And you tweak the knobs and you try different things. And often if that answer had come out the way you expected, you would have been like, all right, okay, great, I'm done. So we always make decisions differently when we're looking at real actual data sets. And the more that you explore on those gardens of forking paths, especially for using a null hypothesis testing framework, the more more different chances you're giving yourself to finding an effect, the more you are risking mining that noise for something that's ultimately not really there. And you can kind of see it if you squint and if you make all of these decisions, but you're not likely to see it in another data set. Right. So to make sure that I'm tracking, this is also sort of a tool for lack of a better phrase, ensuring responsible data management that you aren't just closing your eyes and turning your head and saying like, yeah, there's definitely an effect there. It's planned from the outset, how many data points you're going to collect that you're going to include in your analysis, what kinds of analyses you're going to do with the exception of maybe exploratory analyses that you disclose at the end, like, hey, this wasn't included in our pre-registration, but we found this interesting effect or something like that and prevents you from harking or hypothesizing after results are known and saying, yeah, we assumed that was going to happen the whole time. So, so one thing I want to throw in here though, is that I love harking. Harking is great. Everybody should hark and just <laughs> say when you're doing it. Yeah. I think sometimes people hear hypothesizing after results are known and it's like, well, of course I have the data. Why collect data if you're not going to learn from it and get some new ideas? Sure. And it really is just drawing this line for yourself between honestly, this relatively small slice of ways that we do quantitative research where we do a null hypothesis testing framework. We want to say I was running one test. This is how confident I am that this result might have come from a null distribution. I think that chance is very low. So here we go. I'm comfortable concluding that I have support for my hypothesis. Separating that 
that out is powerful for preventing fooling both yourself and other people. And when I say fooling, I mean accidentally fooling. I think there are probably frauds out there. And anytime you talk about pre-registration, people often say, well, hey, wait a minute, couldn't someone hack this or just write 10 pre-registrations and then only publicize the one that came out the way you wanted to. And it's like, of course you could. Any system can be hurt by a fraudulent actor. I think it's an important problem to solve. But when I think about these tools that we use for open science, where the power seems to me is that there are ways for a community to kind of hold itself accountable and look at the work we're doing, not as a way to prevent fraud. Like you need different tools for preventing fraud. Pre-registration is like not going to cut it. A variation on pre-registration, which I think is often confusing for people to think about, is registered reports. And a registered report is where we're going to get even more formal than posting something to a pre-registration registry and actually get the journals involved. And these days actually sometimes even get the funders involved. And so this is the idea to say like, hey, I know how to write my pre-registration to a certain degree. I'm going to work with my mentors, whoever else is going to kind of help me get this pre-registration in shape. But rather than having reviewer number two say two years from now, <laughs> really actually you should have done this whole other study. Why don't we try to get reviewer's opinion right now? It's always reviewer number two. Absolutely. So if you've ever been in that position where you've got a reviewer saying, oh, you should have just done a different study and you're sort of sitting like, well, you know, I can't, I can't go back and do that. Yeah. And you're like, now you tell me. <laughs> That's really what a registered report is trying to do. So to kind of take that, really kick the tires, either identify places where the author team maybe isn't really exploring a place that could have some analytic flexibility later, or just that it's not necessarily the appropriate study. Maybe this is a really resource intensive study. And so you really want to stop and do some peer review and really get it right before you put in the resources to actually conduct the study. And then the thing that's really exciting about registered reports is that you get in principle acceptance. So the way that a registered report works is you essentially are writing the introduction and method section of your paper, and almost even sort of the results section as well for the Many Babies One project. We literally wrote wrote the results section. And then every once in a while, there would just be a yellow highlighted part. And it would say like, we collected XYZ participants. Literally what we're saying to the reviewers is like, hey, this is what we intend to say. There will be a number here the next time you see this. And so once we had done that, the journal is saying, yes, you've been through peer review, provided that you stick to this plan, like the work that you wind up doing reflects the part that we've seen so far. We're going to publish this no matter what, whether it's a null result, whether it's a big effect, small effect. The registered report is ensuring that that stuff gets into the literature, which is so, so vital. This is like, I think one of the biggest problems that I see with the way that a lot of times the literature can operate when these kind of open steps aren't being taken is that the things that quote unquote work are making it into the literature and the things that quote unquote don't work are staying in the file drawer. We talked a little bit about peer review and the value of that. And I think to me, it just sounds kind of like taking peer review, which traditionally is at the end after you've made as perfect of a manuscript as you can. And it's really like weaving it in throughout the process. And you're getting evaluated then on your planning, on the process of developing the study, on the quality of the science, as opposed to just how splashy and novel your results might be. It feels like it sort of marries what I view as a very subtle distinction maybe between like what is true and also what is honest and sort of brings both of those to the practice, like helps us maintain our integrity as scientists, that the work that we're doing is well thought through and agreed upon by other members of the community as well thought through, not just that it's super shiny. Or not agreed on, but not agreed on in community, which we also love. Sure. So the last kind of big tool that for me kind of sits under this open science or open scholarship umbrella is open data, open code, open materials. And so the idea with all of these is that a journal article is not the science. A journal article is a report about the science. And the journal article also isn't a natural kind. It didn't come from the world. It came from scientists. There's this story that I love that at one point when 
scientists communicated with each other, they wrote something that looked very much like a letter. There are still journals that are called, you know, like letters to the society of something. You would include whatever it was that you thought you should include. And in the early 1900s, the APA, one of the things that they did was they sat down and they really hashed out like, wait a minute, what should we put in these papers that we're all writing? And what they came out with was, hey, we should have a method section on one hand and a result section on the other. That's not something that's automatic. That's a piece of cultural technology that we came up with. And it's a piece of cultural technology that can evolve with the kinds of science that we do and the types of tools that we have now. We share PDFs with each other. It's really easy to share like a written manuscript with each other. But at this point, it's also possible for us to share code that's going to let you run another analysis again. If you do work that uses stimuli or survey instruments or things like that to share those so that someone else actually can do the exact study that you did. And then the last one, of course, is open data. And I think that open data is often the one that stresses people out the most, both because it's kind of the most direct opportunity to say like, hey, this is my raw data. If there's a mistake, probably it's in there, it's in the data, or it's in the code. But the other reasons that people worry about sharing those data is that they're not positive that the data should be shared. I want to be really, really clear that there's lots of data that should not be shared. And there's lots of data that could be shared, but you might for a whole variety of reasons decide not to share. I work with video taken in people's homes of their children. I work on a site that has regular security audit because lots of researchers are trusting us to hold that data. I am very, very certain that the solution to this is not let's just make all of the data public because we have responsibilities to our participants. It's really, really important that we honor the promises that we're making with people. So there's the kind of the privacy aspect of that as well. And then on the other side, a lot of times people will say like, hey, I went to enormous effort to collect this data set. Why should other scientists be able to get the benefit of this? Why shouldn't I be able to keep this for myself? A lot of fields, the model really is like maybe it's during your dissertation, you're going to go out and you're going to collect a massive data set. And then from now until tenure, your primary kind of research is going to be continuing to make use of that data that you collected. And something that I feel really lucky about is I actually kind of grew up in a subfield that has been sharing data publicly probably since the 1980s, 1990s, which is in uh, so the field of child language acquisition, where we're really, really interested in how children are learning to speak kind of in like the first three years of life or first five years of life. And that used to be the model is that when you were a graduate student in this field, you would find a handful of kids and you would record them speaking, record their parents speaking, transcribe it, which is a enormous feat, an enormous <laughs> intensive labor to get those transcribed. And then you would have that data. And that would sort of be like, quote unquote, your data. But what that community did is they essentially just turned it around and said, hey, we're going to make all of this public. On the one hand, that's going to mean that other people can use your data, but also it means that you get to use everybody else's data. That move has had an effect on that community that I have a hard time kind of conveying how huge it is. That type of language acquisition work is organized around these open corpora. Because they're doing this, they've been able to do things like converge on some standard ways of formatting these corpora so that everybody can use some of the same analysis code. There are ways of sharing this data to make sure that you're doing a good job. For instance, not revealing personal information. You develop a community culture and a community you know, set of norms and practices about how to do this data sharing really well. And the types of science that people do now regularly depend on multiple corpora. So you don't have your own. You're able to say, this is an effect that I care about and I'm able to explore it in a bunch of different sources from a bunch of different contexts. The reason that I think that that has worked out so well, though, is that that community also very intentionally from the very beginning has been really, really on the ball about citation. 
when they started to do this, scientists would call each other out. If you submitted a paper and you used someone else's corpus and not cited them, you would get told off. If you went to a conference and you presented results from one of these public things and you didn't say who it was by, someone might stand up in your conference talk and say, hey, this is someone else's corpus, you should be citing them, which is like a really effective way to get people kind of on the train of citing those things. <laughs> public shaming really works. <laughs> yeah. That being said, especially when the data is really onerous to collect, you might decide that you are going to share the data later, not now. There are a lot of people trying to work out policy around this where they're saying, oh, well, really authors should have exclusive rights to the data for the first three years. And then after that, it should become public. I do want to recognize that, especially earlier in your career, you might not be in a position where you can say, hey, I'm going to you know, open the floodgates. I'm concerned that I won't be able to get as much out of my data as I need to, or my mentors are telling me that I shouldn't do this. I think that that's the kind of thing that really does come down to kind of your personal decisions. We all make decisions that are balancing what's good for me as a scientist versus what's good for the scientific community. And this is something that I struggle with because on the one hand, I think it really sucks when the people who are kind of in the most tenuous positions are being asked to take those bigger risks, like because they're earlier in their careers. And so they're kind of in the position where they might be able to say like, hey, I'm starting and so I'm going to make my data public from here on out. And on the one hand, it could be really tough for people to kind of feel like, wow, like shouldn't the tenured faculty be leading these strides? You really want to say to junior faculty or like new graduate students, like, hey, here's one more thing you want to do. So that's kind of the one hand, like I really want to recognize that. And on the other hand, I have felt really personally empowered by deciding to do things that are blatantly bad for my career. And when I say blatantly bad for my career, I mean spending time replicating a study that was really on the border of whether or not I should replicate it. I did it once. We submitted it to a journal. The One of the peer reviewers sent it back to us and said, hey, you've got this sub-analysis in here. You report that you didn't intend to do the sub-analysis, which is great. But given that you didn't find an effect in your main body, you only found it in this one subset, I really think that you should probably replicate this. I went ahead and replicated it. It was the nullest null effect you've ever seen in your life. And so that's a paper I didn't publish. And I am so glad I didn't publish that paper. I probably like shouldn't be from the perspective of my career, but I am so glad that I had that experience. I'm really glad that I didn't publish something that I was later going to have to turn around and walk back or, you know, later on not be able to replicate. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities for people earlier in their careers to make decisions like sharing a data set openly that don't really require a lot of access to levers of power or like a ton of infrastructure. You really can as a graduate student just decide, hey, these stimuli that I made are actually really cool. I think someone else might like to use them. I'm going to make them public. I think that that's the kind of thing that I'd like to see really people at all career stages kind of feel empowered to find the places where they'd like to have that impact and to really think about it as like you have an opportunity to make an impact on your field. You might not know how it's going to play out, but just as we make an impact by publishing a paper, you can make an impact by choosing to make something other than the article public. When you have those places where it makes sense for you, it makes sense for your career, it makes sense for the type of science that you do, those opportunities to make something public can be really, really exciting. Your work represents this really timely paradigm shift in common practices in the scientific community. This is something you're very obviously exceptionally passionate about and knowledgeable about. What were some of the issues that you encountered in mainstream practices? And how does your work, whether it be through engaging in open science more generally or specifically through the projects that you're involved in right now, move us forward away from some of the more problematic practices, you think? Yeah. I talked a little bit earlier about the experiences that I had flat out not replicating something that was in a published paper. Those were very, very formative experiences for me. I spent a lot of time sort of really, really questioning if I was just exceptionally bad at doing 
studies in developmental psychology because they just were not panning out. And so in that sense, a lot of these practices were a way for me to demonstrate first to myself and then to other people. Actually, I have expertise in this. For those parts of the research process where I'm actually in control of what happens, I'm able to kind of demonstrate the value of what I'm doing. And that was really exciting for me. The other thing that I've spent a lot of time on and that I think is really exciting is kind of a whole set of tools around um, what you could call computational reproducibility. So just the idea that never mind replicating it, running the experiment again in another population, but just given this experiment, this study that you did with this data, can you be very confident that you're not making an error? in your work? Can someone else check your work? Maybe take a look at a different analysis if they're not convinced by the way that you went about it. A lot of those things are much, much easier to do if you start folding in tools that are automated into your workflow. I am an automator by nature. If I have to do something by hand more than twice, I will die. Just sort of conceptually by temperament, if I have an opportunity to take something that's by hand, has an opportunity for me to make a mistake, if there's a way that I can safely automate something, I absolutely will. In my own research, that's probably like another thing that I found very, very satisfying is you do experiment one, you write your code for your analyses, and you do experiment two, which has exactly the same structure, and you hit the button and just magically you don't have to do 50 or 60 percent of the work a second time. That is really satisfying. A lot of the way that I've written that code is not by knowing how to do things myself, but by looking at things that other people did. And so being able to participate in sharing analyses, sharing the data with it, in part because the data is really key for understanding how, again, how that computational reproducibility is going to work. The code and the data can really sit hand in hand to demonstrate the robustness of your work. Being able to kind of participate in the use of either if it's just analysis scripts or tools that you might be able to use somewhere in your process to eliminate one kind of human error or help a community of people all decide to start doing things in the same way. Another advantage to automated solutions is that it's very clear if we're all using this automated solution, we can say like, hey, what did we do? We did this thing that you can go find on the internet. A lot of times the role that I've played in sort of big open science collaborations or things like this often what I've been involved in is somewhere in kind of the data collection to analysis pipeline. A lot of the places where I found myself focusing kind of come out of that. So the Many Babies Project, 60 labs are going to collect data and ostensibly it's the same experiment. We're all using the exact same stimuli. We're all in the same field. And so we all know what we mean by a lot of the terminology that we're using. We've all had a ton of discussions about things like which data are we going to include? What happens if a baby fusses out after two trials? Like we really have gone in detail with all these conversations about what are we going to do and how we're going to report our data. And then still somehow you wind up with 60 data sets that are whoppingly different from each other and are super just inconsistent in terms of how they're recording things. Or you have to go back and ask the lab like, hey, wait a minute, is this seconds or milliseconds? Because these numbers are a little confusing. And just sort of the satisfaction of building something that takes you from those 60 data sets to a pipeline where you have have a ton of confidence that despite the fact that this is a huge number of people, you're contributing your data together in a way and combining it in a way where you feel really confident that you're reporting what you actually found. That's the type of thing that I've just found really, really satisfying and has kind of continued to drive my interest in saying like, well, hey, wait a minute, why did 60 Labs create such different types of data sets? Are there ways that we could do better about specifying in advance what we want a data set to look like? There are tools we could build for that. It turns out that the fMRI community has really done a lot of work in the 
business areas, project called bids, where essentially a ton of work has gone into how are we going to structure our data so that all of our analyses can work across lots of labs. One of the things that I'm doing now is kind of similarly trying to think about, hey, if we wanted to standardize our data, how would we do it? And how would we check that we actually were doing it? A lot of taking things from, we did this project, we discovered there's a lot of mess. We can read about best practices. We can read about things that might help us to kind of let's say like name our files in ways that won't make us tear our hair out in six months. Try to ask the question, all right, well, these are best practices that I can take on at an individual level. And then what can I build to try to make those not just best practices, but easy practices, things that are going to actually make my life easier in the moment, as opposed to being like one more thing that might make my life a little bit harder. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited about making best practices much more accessible because I think that we all are trying to do too much. And anytime that you can kind of offer something where you're going to say like, hey, I'm confident that this is going to help you. And by the way, if you do this, it's also going to help everybody else too. Those kinds of happy moments are really exciting to me. Can you tell us a little bit more about Look It and kind of the inspiration for that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I'm actually the second director of Look It. Look It was created starting around 2013-2014 by Kim Scott, who is a lab mate of mine um, at MIT. And really the inspiration for this work was coming from looking at what it was like as a parent to participate in studies in cognitive development, which typically means, you know, it's 1 p.m. on a Tuesday and you're going to pack up your family and your infant and drive them over to a lab where hopefully you feel comfortable interacting with the staff and think that getting your baby tested by a scientist is going to be a fun interaction and not a scary interaction. And you're going to haul that baby across town, haul them up an elevator, get them into one room, wait around while we do some paperwork, move them into the testing booth, and then have them watch a screen for five minutes minutes and then go home again because often many of these experiments are implemented on screen or like in a puppet show or something like else like that where the baby really is just attending and we're watching how the baby is attending and it's five minutes long because you know that might just be how much time you get with a small baby and so what she was looking at was the possibility of moving some of this stuff online really in order to increase access for families to participate and then also access for researchers to be able to do this work at a much lower cost. Because again, when you're bringing these babies in, you then also need people to meet those families and to set up the rooms and clean those rooms in between babies and all of this other stuff that needs to happen to run an in-person lab. Basically, it was this really exciting proposal like, hey, if we could move in even a portion of this online, it can really unlock opportunities to increase the diversity of who participates in our studies, make it easier for people to build on each other, because online usually means implemented in a way that's kind of more replicable, that you could do it another time. If we lower how much it costs to run one participant, then we can have larger samples. This is a field that's plagued by tiny sample sizes because it's so effortful to get these babies in the door. Really, the goal was to see, can we have a family? It's, you know, three in the morning on Saturday because... That's what time your six-month-old is like up and partying. Can participating in a study be that I pop open my computer, I turn on something that looks like the beginning of a Zoom call, but in this case, asynchronous was kind of the original model. So I can just turn on my recorder, say, hey, I understand that I'm being recorded. I consent to participate in this research with my baby that's right here on my lap. And then again, like watch whatever that demonstration is on the screen. Baby or toddler is attending. Get to the end. Family can say, all right, that was fine. Nothing weird or embarrassing happened in my household that was going on. On, so yes, I'm ready to send this video back over to the scientists. It's a model that really took a lot of time to implement because like I mentioned, we have lots and lots of video of other people's babies. And that is something that understandably makes the lawyers at MIT a little bit nervous. One of the things that I feel so, so lucky of is I get to take advantage of all of the really careful work that she's put in to really kind of get our ducks in a row from 
security standpoint, from a data handling standpoint, from the standpoint of how do we make this tool so that not just some of us at MIT can use it, but actually any researcher can make an account and also do that science on there as well. It's really exciting. And then she'd been building all of this. It was kind of starting to be in beta test. So it was being used by researchers at like four or five other institutions. And then the pandemic hit. The original purpose of Look It had never been, let's do our studies online because it's not safe to bring kids to the lab. But when it became not safe to bring kids to the lab, it really made a difference. And the thing that I think is really interesting is that Look It was kind of cruising along on this very, very carefully planned course. There's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of care towards what tools might researchers need and which ones do we have time to build and kind of provide sort of like a set of resources people could use. And then at the same time, Look It can't do every type of study and it wasn't ready to go absolutely floodgates opened the doors in March 2020. And so the same research community pooled their resources, put on their thinking caps, and within like a month or two, stood up a website called childrenhelpingscience.com, which is essentially kind of like an online bulletin board for studies. So families can visit it and they'll see a picture and a short description of a study and then they click on it. And then that takes them to whatever link a particular lab is working with. So that could be like a Qualtrics survey, or it could be like a scheduling app to schedule a time to have a Zoom call with researchers for protocols that involve actually live interaction with a kid. And so that is very, very flexible. No data is be about children is being stored at all on childrenhelpingscience.com. And so it was really like much easier to kind of get that stood up and going. That was very quickly embraced by the community. I was at Center for Open Science at the time. And when I kind of was coming back into this area and kind of looking at it, it was just like, wow, you guys really did get a huge number of the scientists in this area all in one place, all in one platform, like starting to learn from each other. The disadvantage to Children Helping Science is that because it was built quickly, it also takes a lot of work to maintain and it's hard to add new features to it. So for instance, you have to fill out a form to put in a new study or to do an update to your study. And then really it's a very small number of people who are then going to try to read that information, make sure that you're not doing something that we've decided isn't appropriate for the site, make those changes. And those can take a couple of months to be able to get from the point of you're a researcher, you filled out that application to essentially the ad for your study appearing on this site. Look at, on the other hand, takes more setup in the beginning because as a researcher, you can't just say like, hey, here's a link to my study. You have to get a data agreement where MIT and your institution agree that we're going to be holding videos of other people's babies and transferring them back and forth amongst each other. We have tools that you can use to describe your study in a lot more detail, which means that you as the researcher are going to have to make more choices or be more explicit about stuff because since there's a few different ways you could do it, we have all of those options. And so you're going to have to kind of pick amongst those options to say how you want your study to work. So essentially right now, what we're in kind of in the middle of merging these two platforms, trying to keep really the best of both worlds, but to make sure that the quick and easy access that Children Helping Science has created can continue on. Now that we have this energy, we can take it and we can make it into something that's going to really, really kind of stand the test of time. Right now, a lot of what I'm really excited about on Look It is seeing researchers working with each other, sharing tips. We have a peer review process now that involves those researchers so that it's not just us trying to check every single thing about the studies. Researchers can work with each other, make sure all the links work, make sure that if you like pretend to be a family participating in the Zoom study, that it goes smoothly and it made sense as someone who's not in the same lab and doesn't know everything about how the study should play out. It's been really fun to see kind of how the researchers are helping each other and kind of what we get out of working together in this more open space. Yeah, absolutely. And for a researcher who might be listening to this episode, aside from a data sharing agreement with MIT, what are the steps that they would need to follow in order to get involved in Look It? Or where could they find a guide maybe for how to launch a study using the platform? 
So we have a documentation site, which is lookit.readthedocs.io, which has a guide for researchers who are getting started. The other thing that you can do is to email me. My email address is m-e-k-l-i-n-e -E at mit.edu. Please personally email me and I will help you if you're getting stuck. But essentially the steps are you're going to make an account and then you can make a lab that all of your members of your lab can all join. So basically what that means is that if you have multiple people working together on a study, then all of you can have access to the same study that you're going to work on. So you make that lab. There's a quiz that we ask you to take, which just goes over how the site works, what some of the rules are about how we're using the data and what kinds of consent we're asking for with families or how we're treating their data. And then the last big thing is to join our Slack site, which is where people are peer reviewing each other's studies, asking for technical help, sharing ideas, and sort of organizing all of those other activities in the community. When you're ready to get your study up on Lookit, if you've used Children Helping Science before, the part that's going to look super familiar is that you start by essentially filling out a form where you're saying, hey, what's the title of my study and a short description? Who can participate in the study? Lookit lets you say things like, I want kids who are between two and a half and three and a half who are hearing English at home and are located in the United States. So there's a little bit more work on Lookit because we're going to ask you like, hey, you can specify a little bit more about who you want to get emailed about this study happening. Once you've kind of filled out this basic information, there's kind of a decision point, which is either you've already made a study, whether that's a Zoom study or a Qualtrics or something like that, and you have a link, in which case you're just going to put the link to that study. Or if you're doing what we usually just call an internal study, where you're going to want to be able to actually use the webcam and get data back of that family participating in the study, then you're going to be using our experiment builder. Essentially, you click on like one of the bigger text boxes and it actually pops up in your browser, a place for you to enter a list of parameters. And this is in a format called JSON, which is essentially just an outline that a computer can read and that hopefully we've made it so that you can read pretty easily as well, where basically you're going to say, hey, first I want an introduction and then I want a consent form and I want parents to click the button and record their consent statement and then come back. And a lot of stuff that we've built for you, like you don't have to build something that starts and stops the recorder and puts the little thing right in the right place on the screen for parents to read. You're going to say, hey, I want the look at consent getter frame that we made for you. And then maybe the next one you're going to say, all right, now I want to show the stimuli that are from my study. And so here are the stimuli. And basically you just kind of map out exactly how you want your study to go. That can sound a little intimidating to people who've never maybe heard of Jason before or haven't really built a study in that way before, but we have a community of a couple hundred researchers at this point, almost all of whom are not programmers and who never heard of JSON. These are not people who are coming in on their third programming language. Look, it works the way that it works because it is designed for people who this is their first experience with coding. So you don't have to download anything. You're going to do it right in your browser. We've got some tools that are basically designed to help you make fewer typos, which is one of the real tough things when you're learning to program and you've got a missing parenthesis somewhere that you can't find. We're sort of providing you some tools just right in your browser to make it easy to work with. So you would put up your study description and when you hit enter, now you have your study object and you can see what it would look like for a family. You as the researcher also have a page for that study that is going to give you tools like updating or editing the study and also viewing the responses that you got back, viewing consents if you're doing it that way, downloading your data. And that's all there on the Look at website. It's not being shown to families yet but it's there. You can show it to other scientists. In particular, you could ask for peer review on the look at Slack and get some feedback from another person to make sure everything's going well. Once you've done that, you then hit submit to send it back to us. We then do a round of admin review, which takes around seven days. So it's not instantaneous, but it is uh, like we try really hard to have a fast turnaround. 
and then your study's up. And at that point, you have control as a researcher when exactly it's going. So especially if you're doing Zoom studies and you're only having open slots some of the time, you can have your study only appear to families when it's actually being run. So you can turn it on and off at will. If you want it to be advertised on the Look at Main page, that's great. If for whatever reason you don't want it, let's say you have a really particular population that you're recruiting from, you cannot have it appear on the search page and just have that study link itself that you can then distribute around to people. Continually, we're working kind of refining that process so that it matches what people actually want to do. So for instance, let's say you're running a study for five to seven-year-olds and you go for a couple of months and then you look at it and you say like, okay, well, we rolled the dice and we have a million six-year-olds, not enough five-year-olds. And so actually I want to narrow my age range down. So we're going to try to make that like really easy for you to do as well. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> How much in the driver's seat are you in recruitment? Does it sort of keep the pool open and then you just have to restrict the parameters as you go or... That's, so yeah, so that's a great question. So we have a pool which has kind of several thousand families. So if you say that you'd like to have recruiting from that pool, then once you set your study to be active, then families that have an eligible kid who signed up previously are going to get an email saying, hey, you're eligible for a new study. And most labs are also going to do some of their own recruiting. So when I talk to people about this, I'm hearing it's about half and half families that they're pretty sure that they recruited from a Facebook ad or from their own database if they already have one versus people who are on Lookit. And the thing that's really nice now is that those families that you're bringing in through whatever your recruiting method is, they're going to make a Lookit account in order to take your study. And they're going to hear about upcoming studies, whether it's yours or somebody else's. So every time you recruit a family into a study on Lookit, you are giving that family the opportunity to participate in a ton of studies and increasing that pool of families that other researchers are also going to be able to reach out to. It's such an exciting time, I think, to be an early career researcher because I think especially in the past two years, all of the online data collection tools that we have has just totally expanded. You know, I remember hearing a couple years ago people saying, well, is it really the same if we collect it online? Like, are we going to be able to do the same kind of experiments? Is it the same quality? And now there's just so many tools to help us do that, that it feels like such a possible and such an achievable goal. In terms of is it really the same thing if you do it online or not, that is an empirical question that I am excited to continue learning more about. Mm -hmm. Basically, from the work that Kim did kind of in standing up this program and in kind of the work that people have done since then, generally, I think what we're finding is that many things generalize just fine so long as you've put a lot of thought into all the parts of the experience that aren't your study. One way that things can really go wrong online is if you basically have somebody click a link and then suddenly it's trial one of the study and they don't know what's going on. And actually, wait, my infant's not even with me. Like they're over in the high chair over there and I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And you don't have the equivalent of that ride up in the elevator where you're orienting the families and people do things like even just put a short video of the researcher saying like, hi, welcome to the study. Thank you for taking the time. Recreating the experience both sort of to make a real connection with the families, but then also to take the time to say, all right, like, where's your laptop? Where are you sitting? Do we need you to cover your eyes? Does your kid need to be there for this part of the instructions or not? Some people are doing like drawing tasks. So if they need to have a pencil and paper, did you warn them about that? So kind of just really making sure that families are able to get into the experience really smoothly. And then assuming that that's the case, the question of whether or not it's really the same experience as being in the lab, I think is super, super study dependent. Sometimes people worry about it's the home, it's not a soundproof booth in the lab, it's noisy, lots of different stuff is going on. Fortunately, we have a tool in science for when there's noise, which is increasing the sample size, which is something that hopefully is going to be a lot more accessible if you're doing the thing online. If you think, hey, I don't really have a reason to think that the 
cognitive processes that I'm studying should be super different if the child is physically at home or physically in the lab. If you think that that's basically on the level, but you're worried about noise, then I would absolutely encourage you to do a larger sample size than maybe you had been planning. And then once you've done that one time, compare the effect sizes of what you're getting in the lab versus what you're getting online. And then if you discover that, hey, actually, wait a minute, it's okay if there's a dog barking in the background for this study, we're seeing similar effect sizes, then great. If you see a reduced effect size because that kind of interfering environment is having an impact, then you know that and you can plan it for the future. There are absolutely effects, I think, that will wind up not replicating online just because something about that controlled environment that's not, you know, contained in the rectangle of the laptop screen turns out to be really key for getting the effects. And just from sort of a human level and for types of studies that involve, you know, having a more honest, really intentional relationship building types of conversations with people, you might be able to get that on Zoom, especially, or you might not. If you're looking at the type of study that you're doing, you may decide like, hey, this isn't something that really makes sense to move into a Zoom call. I'd love to do this in person when it's safe, when it's possible. Or honestly, like you might also be doing a type of study that requires equipment that people don't have in their homes. No one has an eye tracker or an EEG in their house. <laughs> you're going to need to bring those kids into the lab. Really? It's not like a casual thing that people just like have in their living room? Um, But the hope that I see there is that we can use those resources really, really smartly. So like, let's say that you're a lab that does behavioral studies and EEG studies that are sort of related to those behavioral studies. If you can pull it off, do the behavioral ones online, save those precious hours of in-person testing and that difficult recruiting for the stuff that you really, really get that bang for your buck happening in the lab. Or for those things where you tried it online and you've determined that for whatever reason, this isn't an effect that we can study online, then absolutely bring those in person. Basically, my hope is that we can avoid wasting resources of bringing everybody in, probably limiting who can participate in the research if it's something that could be done at home. Yeah, and I think that's a really great segue to what is your vision for kind of the future of open science? We talked about so many different opportunities that researchers have to participate. And like we've talked about how much progress has been made over, you know, the past decade or or more. But what do you see as like the horizon over maybe like the next five years for open science? Yeah. That's a great question. When I think about where we're heading in the future, I think the biggest thing that I'm hopeful for is that we're going to be recognizing more and more different kinds of contributions and more and more different types of science. So something that I see both in kind of people who are spending time building open science tools or thinking a lot about how to take some of these transparency or or other types of steps and in these sort of big collaborative projects, it is really, really clear to me how many critical contributions there are that are not the same thing as authorship. And I kind of think authorship is a broken concept and we shouldn't have it anymore. And when I think about what we're gonna see in terms of the things that people are sharing or the things that people are are making public, what I'm hoping is that what we're gonna see is people really, really recognizing the labor and the value of many different types of things. Sharing an open data set, documenting it, making it usable, making sure that you've done a good job, making it having like maximal potential for reuse, that you put in the work to rewrite your consent form so that you actually asked for and got good consent to share that data if that's necessary. Those are really, really important contributions to science, which tend to not pop up on an author list, like or at least not be reflected on that author list alongside the work that that person might have done kind of an actual writing. So my hope is that with all these different tools of pre-registration or sharing or open access that we're seeing, people really understanding the value of work that's being done across lots and lots of different career stages, types of work, types of positions that people are in. As for more specifics, I don't know if we'll be calling it open science or something else. Um, I don't know. 
I think that I think of open science as being sort of a broad set of very powerful tools that I think everybody should have the opportunity to at least think about what it would be like as a scientist to change something about your process and see if those kinds of thought experiments can kind of lead you towards something that is going to help you reach your goals. We usually close our episodes with one question, but I'm going to ask you two in one go, if that's okay. The first is, what do you think the best part of being a kid in 2022 is? And the second is, what's the best part of being a scientist in 2022? I think that it is hard to be a kid in 22. It's hard to be a parent in 2022. There's a lot of change. Anyone who's, you know, under the age of 18 has had a substantial portion of their life impacted by the pandemic, having things changing a lot. And in terms of what's positive about that, I think that there is a lot of curiosity and care and concern about kids' experiences and about what is different if you're going to school every day in person versus if you're not, or finding new ways for learning about what those experiences are, learning what families need, what kids need. And my hope is that that's going to be something that really improves kids' lives, that we're going to be able to see those venues, both for families to communicate, for young people to be communicating online more and more and more and more, that those create opportunities for people's voices to be heard. And, and to recognize that the experiences that we have in those years like really, really matter. My hope is that that's something that the things that we've experienced during the pandemic, the things that have been difficult about it, kind of help us to build empathy or that we kind of learn about the challenges of being a parent, of being a caregiver, being a child when things change really radically. And I'm hoping that that's going to be kind of a time for kids to both feel heard, feel like they've got ways to understand lots of different people's experiences and hopefully feel like that's something where they can really feel seen or really feel like that they have a voice. I think my answer might be the same for scientists. It's been a rough couple of years. One thing that I do think that is sort of increasingly true each year is that it is easier to have a voice in conversations that don't depend on what your career stage is or what institution that you're at. And I think that's really exciting. There's this event that happens to me now every May, June every year, which is where I find out which of the people that I'm super intimidated by and impressed with really, really admire their work. I like find out which of them have been grad students this whole time because they're saying like, hey, I've defended my dissertation or like, hey, I've got my first faculty job. And just because, you know, that's not the first thing that you see in a lot of these conversations. When you go to SIPs, I can go for an entire conference and at the end, like I can't tell you which of those people are faculty members and which of them are graduate students. And I think that's exciting. I think it's an exciting time for people to just be able to be curious and be able to feel like the work that you're doing is part of a community, part of a conversation and not something where you're really, really siloed in just one lab or just one topic off on your own. Well, this was a really, really wonderful conversation. I have learned a lot and thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat with us. This was such a treat. And I just appreciate all of the questions that you have been pushing us to think about because, you know, it's really about who am I as a researcher and what kind of tools do I want to use and like, how do I see my contribution? So I just appreciate all that deep thinking kind of underlying like what we do every day as, you know, trying to create knowledge and trying to create science and also reflect deeply on who we are in that process and what that means. So yeah, thank you so much. Uh, You didn't think we'd leave you without some research and policy updates, though, right? (laughs) So given this episode focused 
focused on open science, and given how really influential Melissa's work has been in this area, I'll briefly mention an article that came out in early 2022 with Melissa and Brian Nosek as authors, as well as many of their colleagues from around the world. So this was an extremely thorough review that came out in the journal Annual Review of Psychology, and it's called Replicability, Robustness, and Reproducibility in Psychological Science. Wait, what do those words mean? (laughs) Yeah, so those are three words that all start with R and sound similar, but have slightly different meanings, which they really dig into in their review. So replication is really about testing the reliability of a prior finding using different data. So in this episode, Melissa talked a lot about the replicability crisis and the need for scientists to really critically evaluate research studies and also be able to replicate them. Robustness, on the other hand, is about testing the reliability of a finding using the same data, but a different analysis strategy. And lastly, reproducibility is about testing the reliability of a finding using the same data and the same analysis strategy. So these three R's are slightly different, but as you dig a little bit deeper into really studying replication and reproducibility and robustness, it's really helpful to know these nuanced resources for listeners who are interested in digging a little bit deeper. And these three R's are really important for researchers, particularly in psychology, to embrace because it's not particularly common, right? It involves using the same kinds of methods, the same research question. And so by and large, your findings are not going to be super novel, which is typically what the publication sphere tends to reward. And so it's not frequent that researchers are employing these kinds of practices, right? Yeah, for sure. And because it takes a lot of time and also resources in order to replicate a study, you know, that's time that you could spend like creating a new idea, running a new study. So I think a big point of the open science movement is to really take the time to really be thorough about our work and to take measures in order to make sure it suits those three R's. So the replicability crisis for the field of psychology, really since 2010, it started a decade of discussion around these three R's. And a really important point that I appreciated that the authors made in this article is about theoretical maturity. Okay, so let's break that down. So obviously (laughs) we have theories and theories in science are not, you know, the way that you hear people talk about theories on the street. It's not like a hunch you have or like a guess without any evidence. A theory in science is very well founded. So gravity is a theory, right? We, you know, we know that gravity exists and we see its effects on our lives every day, but scientifically it's considered a theory. So in the world of open science, really no one is expecting a 100% replication rate. And the authors say, quote, a healthy and theoretically generative research enterprise will include non-replicable findings. So they're making this argument that non-replicability is not avoidable and uh, it should decline as the science around a particular research topic becomes more mature. This is really in response to scientists saying, well, hey, like part of what's important with science is that we're taking risks, we're exploring, we're generating hypotheses. So of course, replication, you know, doesn't have as high a value when really you want to do that exploratory science. The response from the authors is that that is totally valid. And also the more mature that a topic gets, the more evidence we build around it, that rate of non-replicability should decline. So basically they're saying don't expect perfection and we can adjust our standards of replicability based on different stages of the maturity of our theories. 
it's nice because it feels like sort of like a meta perspective about how science works generally, that what we're ultimately doing is learning, right? And as we're collecting more evidence and we're sort of refining our approach to asking a particular research question or our understanding of a working theory, which, as you mentioned, is informed by evidence, then the better we get essentially at asking questions, right? We're doing a better job at the outset of practicing science. Yeah, exactly. So you're making this point about progress, right? Like how do we measure scientific progress? Hopefully our ideas get better and better as we learn more about a topic because we're able to refine our approach. So at the beginning of a topic, like something that's totally novel that we really don't have a lot of information about, you know, you want to take more risks in science because you want to expand what's known about it. And then as we gain more research and information about it, we're going to want to be able to replicate those studies more and more. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, I'm sort of picturing the visual of someone like walking into a dark room. We don't know anything about what's in that room, but you can only illuminate it like a square foot at a time. And so you're going through and turning the lights on and off and sort of figuring out a path. And as you're learning and advancing into the room, you get better about anticipating where you need more light. Yes, that's a beautiful metaphor. (laughs) And as scientists, we're slowly, you know, brightening up dark rooms more and more. And as we do that, our standards for the methods that we're using goes up as we get more more information. There's a joke about scientists and light bulbs in there somewhere. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke about scientists and light bulbs <laughs> and how many open scientists it takes to, to screen a light bulb. <laughs> Yeah, so just as a last note about this article, they mentioned that there are some more areas within, like you mentioned, meta-science that we don't have enough evidence about yet. One example is, you know, how do we decide on what those benchmarks are for replication standards while also taking into account how long these theories have been around for, how much evidence there is. And then lastly, open science is a culture change, like Melissa talked about. It's a movement. And in order to create an effective social movement that promotes, you know, a healthy research culture, there also has to be an examination of are there any unintended negative consequences as a result of this culture shift? You know, are scientists less likely to take risks that could lead to scientific breakthroughs? Like that would be an unintended negative consequence. You know, it's also important to consider the flip side. And and then the, my favorite quote at the very end. So it just felt like the most meta thing. So, right. So as we're reading a scientific article, like about the process of science written by people who are like promoting transparency and they kind of end on a healthy meta science and culture change movement is going to constantly be evaluating its progress and its impact to adapt and change course as is demanded by evidence. So it just felt super meta because it's like scientists, you know, who study open science being like, and we're going to be really transparent about the future of open science and continue to study it and use evidence. I'm like, yeah, that's very on brand. (laughs) I love that. That's beautiful. Well, so on the policy front, I have to say at the outset, it really is not related to open science at all. (laughs) But I do want to make sure that folks are updated with everything that's been going on recently. One bit of open science policy news is that the Biden administration recently released a notice that by the end of 2025, all taxpayer-funded federal research will be made freely available to the public, ending a longstanding tradition of embargoing that research or limiting access behind a paywall for up to a year. Most publishers argue that keeping the subscription-based embargo is important to maintaining the revenue that covers publication and editing expenses, but the mounting waves of criticism over federal research not being open access proved enough to sway the administration to treating the work more like public access, per the language used in the new guidance. Analysts say that how the change will ultimately affect the finances of specific journals, publishers, and researchers is kind of hard to predict at this point, but it's clear even now, before the policy has gone 
into effect that this move reflects a broader cultural shift toward making science accessible to the people using it to make change. In other news, President Biden has kicked the can further down the road on student loan repayments, which now don't resume until the end of the year, December 31st. But for folks who are not Pell Grant recipients, they can have $10,000 of federal student loan payments totally canceled. That's amazing. It really is. Yeah. And for Pell Grant recipients, that number jumps to $20,000. So this is a huge impact for millions of people. That's such good news. Yeah. Yeah. I think by and large, We've talked about this repeatedly on this show, and we've had conversations with other experts in research and in policy who agree. Any edge that you're giving to people to help promote their economic security and empower them to build strong financial futures for themselves, that has just enormous cascading benefits over time. Yeah. And for people who are you know, studying hard in school and have this debt because they're trying to get an education so they give back to society. So yeah, <laughs> I think that's such a great opportunity. Even though it's not as far as a lot of progressive advocates might have liked, I think a lot of folks are still looking for full debt cancellation. This is a big step for a lot of people, so absolutely worth celebrating. This past month has been sort of a whirlwind on the policy front. With the exception of today's news, most notably, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 into law, which means that Americans will see many of their primary expenses like energy and healthcare costs be significantly reduced. So on the topic of promoting economic security, this is also something that I think is going to be tremendously beneficial for lots of people. The law is set out to cut down on the cost of prescription drugs and energy bills, set a path toward 40% lower carbon pollution by the end of the decade, and to boot, reduce the overall federal deficit by upwards of $300 billion. There are lots of things to be excited about with this piece of legislation. It's the first and largest pot of funding set aside specifically to combat climate change, So that is huge, a huge deal, especially in the face of droughts and fires out west and historic flooding from Kentucky eastward and most recently in Texas. I will say that one drawback of this piece of legislation, especially for childcare and early learning advocates, is that it does not include any spending specifically for those initiatives. And many other priorities that advocates in the child and family policy space have been fighting for. So we're continuing to seek alternative routes for at least some funding for these critical support systems, like through existing federal subsidy programs that bring down costs for families. Here I'm talking about the Child Care and Development Block Grant specifically, and seeking the reauthorization of important programs that support infants and parents like home visiting programs and food and nutrition programs. Several of those initiatives, including the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, or better known WIC, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF, and the Maternal, Infant, and Early Childhood Home Visiting Program, or McV, are all facing expiration in the coming few months. So advocates are in a bit of a race to the finish line to make sure that there's still funding in the game to help program participants get the help that they need. That was sort of an info dump. Stay tuned for more updates because the landscape is changing quickly. All right, that's all we have for today, curious listeners. Like this podcast if you liked it. Subscribe or follow if you loved it. We'll see you next month for a chat about boys' friendships and caring masculinities with Dr. Angelica Puzio. Until next time, thanks for listening.